one of my pastors years ago was preaching one Sunday morning and the congregation became very, very agitated. After a while, he stopped and he said, what's the problem? Somebody said, Father's Day is next week. Yes, he was preaching his Father's Day sermon early, a week early. He said, I wondered why I didn't get a present this morning. The evening service, he raised his hand and said, how many here can say you got a Father's Day present one week early? I don't preach Father's Day or Mother's Day sermons. Mother's Day, especially in the church, in my view, has become very maudlin and sentimental. The worship services are all focused upon human beings rather than upon God. But I believe in being a father, and I believe that you should be a mother. And let me tell you something, that if you really grab hold of what is preached week after week after week and work it down into your heart with the blessed work of the Spirit of God, then you will become the kind of father God wants you to be, and you will become the kind of mother that God wants you mothers to be. And when I come across it in the text, I will preach what the text has to say about it. But right now we're in Matthew's Gospel, and I ask that you turn there. Matthew chapter 24. Now, last week we gave a broad exposition of the 24th chapter of Matthew, which has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ. And we showed how these things related in these passages. Now, it's very unusual that I take more than one pericope section of Scripture uh, as I preach, but I'm actually going to read with you four different parables that are successive at the end of chapter 24 and into chapter 25. And we're going to look at these four parables together this morning. Let's bow in prayer before we read. Gracious God and Father in heaven, we ask that as we turn to this wonderful passage of Scripture, that you would be pleased to fill our minds and hearts with Christ Jesus, with who he is and what he has done, and that we may ever look to his coming, and that having that hope, we would be purified within our hearts. We ask that those who are lost and undone will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and bow before his lordship. May someone who has come here lost today walk out a saved person. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of God. The first parable is found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The second parable, chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant 
whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 25, the first 13 verses, forms the third parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The fourth parable begins in chapter 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talents from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Question. How much of your daily living is determined by a focus upon the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? If we say none or very little, we are very far removed from the New Testament perspective. If we find ourselves out of harmony with the New Testament witness, what are we to do? Well, we are to bring our minds, our hearts, our affections, and our wills into conformity with what we have read in these parables this morning, because they're all about the Lord Jesus' return. Obviously, the Lord Jesus wants us to see that having a right perspective on his return has a great deal to do with Christian living. As a matter of fact, it defines Christian living for us. You see how important this is? A right focus on the return of Christ defines Christian living for us. Four parables, four perspectives on the return of Christ, four controlling themes for daily living. And in view of the certain promise of the return of Christ, these parables tell us how we must live. First parable. The first parable is the parable of the burglar, found in chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. It teaches us that the coming of Christ will be unexpected. It's a very simple parable. While the owner of the house slept, the thieves broke in and stole the owner's valuables. If the owner of the house had known that this was going to happen, he would have stayed awake so that the burglary would not have happened. It's the idea of the thief in the night, and the thief in the night image is used elsewhere in the New Testament regarding the return of Jesus. Paul the Apostle, 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 2 Peter chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the words, works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 3, verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And so Jesus has already taught about the suddenness of his coming as a thief in Matthew 24. Now, To whom is he speaking? Why this parable? For whom are these words intended? Well, those who are listening to the words of Jesus, as believers in Jesus, so that we will be prepared when he comes. For us, it is the most joyful anticipation of life that our Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. For whom are these words intended? Also for those who do not listen, who do not believe, who have not trusted in Christ. The words come to you as a warning. The parable teaches us that before the Lord returns in glory, many will ignore the impending judgment. 
There will be no advance warning, but his own word of warning in the scriptures. And those who ignore it will do so to their doom. And those who heed the warning by trusting Christ for salvation will be ready rather than surprised when Jesus returns. The parable of the burglar teaches us, be alert. Be alert. Second parable, found in chapter 24, verses 45 through 51, is the parable of the faithful servant. The parable is about a servant entrusted with managing a household in the absence of his master. If he proves wise and faithful, the master will reward him well when he comes. If he is lazy and careless, the master will inflict severe punishment. The unfaithful steward, well, the parable actually is very, very powerful when we stop to consider that many profess Christ who do not possess Christ. The lazy, faithless manager was a hypocrite. Look again at chapter 24, verses 48 through 51. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to bear his fellow, beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this fellow parties up. He blows off his responsibility. He cares for nothing but his master's, his, his master, he cares nothing for his master's possessions. He will be severely punished when the master returns. Now, is that someone here? Professing Christ, but not possessing Christ. Caring nothing for the master and the master's possessions. The faithful servant, upon him will be given reward, and that reward, of course, is the reward according to grace. But the parable of the faithful servant says, in your daily calling as believers in Jesus, you are managing your Lord's possessions. As husband, father, student, minister, electrician, whatever your calling may be in life, do these things in light of his coming. And in so doing, the point of the parable of the faithful servant as it relates to the return of Christ is this. Be faithful. Be faithful. Third parable. The parable of the ten virgins. Now, this is one of those parables in which people sometimes get lost in the details. Don't do that. Jesus' point is very simple. There are ten bridesmaids that prepare for the arrival of the bridegroom. The Hebrew bride would have been very young, and she would have been surrounded with youthful friends, her bridesmaids. Verse 1 tells us this is all about the kingdom. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So they helped to prepare the young bride so that she will be adorned for the bridegroom. And then they would accompany the bride to the house of the bridegroom. According to this parable, there were five, five who were wise, and there were five who were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take oil to replenish their lamps. Their lamps began to flicker in the night procession, and they had no way of rekindling the flame. They were totally unprepared. The bridegroom was delayed, and they dozed, and no fault is attached to anyone about that. They dozed. But when the cry came, here is the bridegroom, meet him. They all had brightly lit 
lamps, but only five girls were prepared along the way with additional oil to keep their lamps burning. The wise girls could not be faithful as bridesmaids if they shared their oil. And so they said to the foolish girls, you need to go buy some more. The foolish girls ran off to buy the oil, but by the time they arrived at the festivities, the door was shut to all who had not been a part of the procession. Lord, Lord, open the door. But it was too late. The bridegroom responds, truly I say to you, I do not know you. The conclusion of the parable, chapter 25, verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What is Jesus teaching in this parable? He's teaching that he is the bridegroom and he will come again. And those who are wise are believers in Jesus. They are prepared to live life. Those who are not prepared are not his. The foolish did not make adequate preparation while there was still time. And so the question that comes is, are you prepared? Do you live life with come quickly, Lord Jesus, in your heart? Verse 12 says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the the five foolish virgins are turned away. Does that ring a bell to you? Well, it should. Because back in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uses essentially these very words. In chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does the parable of the ten virgins teach us? The parable of the ten virgins teaches us, be prepared. Be prepared. The fourth parable, the parable of the talents, found in chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Now, talents here do not mean natural gifts. It was a unit of money. Large sums of money were entrusted to the master's servants in this passage. A talent was 6,000 denarii. A day laborer would take 20 years to earn this much money. It's a lot of money. He was leaving the country for an extended period of time, and the master expected these servants to make his money work and to increase while he was gone. To the first servant, he gave five talents. To the second, two talents. To the third, he gave one talent. The man with one talent was afraid to invest the money or start a business with it. The first servant, of course, doubled the amount, as did the servant who received two talents. But this one... He didn't do anything, he just buried it in the ground, didn't do anything. He saw his master as a hard man who demanded an increase, and that was all. And he buried the money in the ground for safekeeping. He would give it back when the master returned. The master did return after a long absence, we are told, and he called his servants to account. The first servant handed him ten talents, a lot of money. Well done, you good and faithful servants, sit at my master's table. 
The second servant gave him four talents. The master rewarded him generously. Now notice they, the servants don't focus upon themselves, but, but upon the talents that are brought to the master. The third servant, however, the one who buried the money entrusted to him, speaks of his master as a hard man and explains that he buried the money. He expected undoubtedly to be commended by the master for this. But the master has no word of praise. He calls the man lazy and wicked, and he chides his faithlessness. And we read in chapter 25, 26 to 30, look at it again. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have scattered no seed. See, he's quoting his servant. You see that, don't you? Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." The master condemned his servant using his servant's own words. Now, this parable is all about the return of Christ. The man who was condemned ultimately was condemned because he had no confidence in his master. Those who increased what was given to them trusted their master and worked zealously for their master. True Christians work for the master. The Lord knows what he has given you and he expects an increase. And he expects you to work for the extension of his kingdom. The parable of the talents teaches us, in view of the return of Christ, to work for the master while we may, and to be faithful and zealous. The parable teaches you to be faithful and zealous. Four parables, each bringing a peculiar focus upon how we are to live in anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we are to dig up treasure from the text and be amazed at it as though it were treasure coming from a mine. And so we have dug up this treasure, these parables. We have these four perspectives. Now we want to take them. We want to think about the return of Christ, and we want to think about these four perspectives on the return of Christ and how it relates to your Christian living. Four parables each bringing a peculiar focus upon how we are to live in anticipation of the return of Christ. So that's what we see next. Four perspectives on the coming of Christ. The parable of the burglar, the perspective was, be alert. Be alert. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We do not know when the last sermon will be preached We do not know when the last of God's elect will be drawn by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to salvation. But live life as if Christ will come in your lifetime. Every generation of believers is responsible to live in this way. As if Christ will come in my lifetime and my generation. If you do not know Christ, you are not and you cannot live an alert life. You do not know the times. You don't understand the day in which you live. And you will be caught off guard when Christ comes again. Whether that coming be for you in death, or whether it be his return in glory, 
to judge the living and the dead. But believer, you and I are called to live alert Christian lives. Keep your finger here, turn to Romans chapter 13. Notice how the Apostle Paul focuses upon this. In Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Paul says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. He's talking about the day of Christ's return. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The Apostle Paul speaks of the nearness of time, of the coming of Christ. Now, history is like a great clock. But the spaces between are not like the clock on your kitchen wall. So that you can say, here are five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen, twenty, and so forth. It's like a clock with uneven spaces between the numbers. Eleven o'clock was the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Twelve o'clock will be his return. We don't know how much space there is between the eleven and the twelve, but the next time the clock strikes, it will be twelve. The next great event on God's eschatological clock is the return of Jesus Christ, our Savior. What the Apostle Paul is saying, you keep that in mind. You remember, eleven o'clock has passed. Twelve o'clock is coming, and you live an alert Christian life. Christian living becomes focused when we remember what time it is. Who will consciously sin when we think at any moment I may be in the presence of Christ? All right, that's the first perspective. Be alert. The second perspective for your Christian living that relates to the return of Christ is found in the parable of the faithful servant. And it is just that. Be faithful. Chapter 25. Chapter 24, verses 45 and 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. O church... Be faithful. Oh, Christian, be faithful. Now, I want to tell you that your pastor, I live with, with a sense of grief in my heart. Grief in the departure of the church of Jesus Christ from the truth. I'm even more grieved that men who should see this often do not. We no longer live on the word, but on the wisdom of men. I'm not tilting at windmills. There's plenty of evidence for what I'm saying. The church is more concerned, and you know I'm generalizing. Thank God, by grace there are exceptions, but the church is more concerned with power and influence and being accepted than it is with truth. We have just about given up our reformed inheritance. We do not understand and see that we are to do all things out of our confession. 
That should determine how we do things, how we live, the choices we make. We're sitting in our chairs on the edge of the water. The tide is coming in and we're sleeping. And we will awaken to find ourselves in water too deep, with currents too swift in which to swim. That is the church in America in our day. I'm telling you, it is. So you ask the question, how then can we be faithful? How do we learn what it is to be faithful? And the answer is so simple, but we forget. Let's not forget. Let me remind you, the answer is, where do we find what that means? By attending to the Holy Scriptures. By being in the book. By attending with heart and soul upon the preached Word. By reading the Word. By living out of the Word. This is all determinative for us. We must take hold of the Word of God and we must do so tirelessly. The challenge that comes from this word about being faithful is just that. Take hold of the word of God and do so tirelessly, people of God. Love this word. Read this word. Learn this word. Let this word form your values, your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, your affections. Take hold of the word of God tirelessly. Apart from the word, you don't know who God is, you don't know who man is, you don't know this world, you don't know anything about why you're here. Take hold of the word of God tirelessly. Be faithful. The third perspective comes from the parable of the ten virgins. Do you remember the perspective? The parable of the ten virgins? The perspective is be prepared. Be prepared. Now, I especially want to address unbelievers who may be among us today. Chapter 25, verses 11 through 13. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, remember, he's reflecting Matthew chapter 7. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The door was shut. They could not enter. They had not been prepared to meet the bridegroom. They were totally unprepared. They were not ready. And surely there is someone here today. You trip along in life and you do not consider But I say on the authority of God's word, prepare to meet your God. They prophesied back there in Matthew 7. They drove out demons. They performed miracles. None of these are sure evidences of faith in Christ. My friend, a person can have great gifts and even use them in the church. No evidence of faith in Christ. They were unconscious hypocrites. They were deceived. They substituted gifts for graces. They depended upon their zeal rather than upon Christ and upon their gifts rather than Jesus. And Jesus goes on in chapter 7 and he says, look, you need to know that there are two foundations. One is worthless. The other is a real foundation. One is sand. You build your house, the house of your life on that. The winds come, the storms, the the, the water, the waves. 
It's all going to fall away. If you build on the rock, then when the judgment comes, when the winds come, when the waves, the hardships of life, you'll stand. One is to build upon the things of this world that are passing. The other is to build upon Christ, who alone is the Savior of sinners. Upon whom are you building the edifice of your life? Some of you young people, you just don't understand. Some of you just don't get it. Some of you middle-aged folks, you just don't get it. Ask some of our older people. Life passes swiftly. Like a weaver's shuttle. Like a boat down the Nile. These are biblical images. Like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We have eternity ahead of us. Eternity. And so the parable says, be prepared. Do you trust in Christ who died for sinners, bearing the wrath of God for his people? Only in trusting Christ will you be prepared when Jesus comes. But then there's a fourth perspective. A fourth perspective that calls upon you and me as Christians to be faithful and zealous in the service of Christ. This is from the parable of the talents. As I said, you cannot build upon zeal, but only on Christ. Nonetheless, true believers are called to be faithful and zealous in service of Christ. The world is certainly zealous in its idolatry. I mean, the world goes after her idols with real gusto. But should we not be zealous for the one who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross? And zealous as we look for his coming and live life anticipating his return. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, you know, said, Zeal is a mixed affection, a compound of love and anger. That's true. We will be zealous only when the love of Christ leads us to be angry with the sin that put him on the cross. If you know nothing of that in your heart, you will not be zealous and you cannot be faithful. I wonder if there is someone here and if you're true within your heart, you're saying, I'm lax right here. You just don't remember how holy is our God, how grievous is sin, how gracious is our Savior, what he's done for you and how you should be faithful and zealous for him. Be faithful and zealous, my friends, and be faithful and zealous when it gets hard. Be faithful and zealous in the midst of persecution. Your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are suffering persecution greatly right now. But it's coming here. It's coming to Northern Europe. It's coming to England. It's coming to the United States of America. We already see it. One of the Northern European countries right now is attempting to force ministers to recognize and perform homosexual marriages. Now, I put that in quote because marriage is only between one man and one woman. Now, let me say something very clearly. If there's a homosexual here this morning, we love you. We want you to come to faith in Jesus. That sin can be forgiven and God can transform your heart. But I'm talking to the people of God right now, and this is what I'm saying. The day is undoubtedly going to come in which I or another minister will be expounding the first chapter of the book of Romans. 
And we will see there what it says. And I'm just taking homosexuality. It could be anything. It could be Islam. It could be any number of things. But, you know, we, we say this is what the Bible says about it. We say lovingly, come to faith in Christ, believe and repent of this sin. And someone's going to knock on my door, and they're going to have an arrest warrant, and they're going to say, we have a warrant for your arrest. Why? Because of the hate speech that has come out of your pulpit. Now, can I prove that that's going to happen? No, not here. But it seems to be shaping up that way, and it certainly is happening in other parts of the world, that if you speak in the name of Christ, expound a text faithfully, say what the gospel says, if you speak against Islam in certain countries, then that's what happens. All in the name of tolerance. That's how it's very subtly shaping up in our midst. Now I'm saying to you, in the midst of the hardships of life, and if persecution comes to us, are you going to be prepared to be zealous and faithful for the gospel? I was reading one of the old ministers the other day, and he says, persecution has a purifying effect. We gain in depth what we lose in breadth. I like that. And if there is anything the Church of Jesus Christ needs right now in our own country, it is to gain in depth and lose in breadth. The words of J.C. Ryle come to mind. I fear much for many professing Christians. I see no sign of fighting in them, much less of victory. They never strike one stroke on the side of Christ. They are at peace with his enemies. They have no quarrel with sin. I warn you. This is not Christianity. This is not the way to heaven. And so the parable of the talents calls us to be faithful and zealous. Let us learn to be faithful in everything. Let us grow in that. For Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, amazing, really. Amazing, isn't it? how we are willing to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord until he wants me to do something that I don't want to do. Amazing how I can say, Jesus Christ is Lord until I want to do something that I know from the scriptures he doesn't want me to do. And then what do we do? We say, Jesus Christ is Lord, but... Jesus Christ is Lord, but you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand the pressures I'm under. Jesus Christ is Lord, but, but, no, 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 no. After the word Lord, there can be no but. Jesus Christ is Lord, period. That's what you need. That's what I need. Faithfulness and zealousness in the service of Christ who is Lord, period. These parables of Jesus then call us to live expectantly, to live in eager anticipation of the return of Christ. Someone has said, live as though Christ died yesterday, arose this morning, and is coming again tomorrow. And so I ask, are you anticipating the return of Christ? Some of you are going to take a summer vacation soon. You'll be going somewhere and be like 
my brother and I in the back of the car, always wanting to see the ocean. Every hill we went over, we thought we were there. Daddy, are we there yet? Daddy, are we there yet? Daddy, are we there yet? Some of you dads know exactly what I mean. But that's how we should be living as Christians, anticipating the return of Christ. Daddy, are we there yet? Are you coming yet, Lord? We are eager for you to return and to come. In Romans 13, Paul defines alert living as putting on Christ, putting aside evil deeds, living chastely, and being alert. Your hardest boss said it beautifully. The gauge of health in the Christian is the degree of his gravitation to the future eternal world. The gauge of health in the Christian is the degree of his gravitation to the future eternal world. Now let me answer a question as we are kind of closing. Let me answer a question that may be nagging someone here. Obviously, the New Testament expects Christians to live in joyful anticipation of the return of Christ. We reflect this by the way in which we close our service with, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But some very thoughtful people in our congregation asked me some time ago to clarify something. Especially they wanted to know how to relate this eagerness for the return of Christ to their concern for lost loved ones. In which... When Christ comes again, there will be no conversions. No one will be converted after that. Well, here's some things to take with you. The New Testament teaches us to pray for the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians 16.22, Maranatha means our Lord comes. And this is intended to encourage the church in the midst of attacks of the evil one. And so also the book of Revelation has numerous references to come quickly in its pages. For example, Revelation 22:20, 20, surely I come I'm coming soon or quickly. To which the believing response is amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And this is what we reflect at the end of our service of worship. We long for Christ's coming because that will bring visible glory to Christ and that's what we're living for, the glory of Jesus. We also pray for the coming of Christ because the church will end her suffering in this world that is now appointed for her. And in our day when the shift in preaching and worship is from an emphasis on God to man, our joyful cry, come quickly, Lord Jesus, can actually be very jolting. But as for the lost, the prayer, come quickly, Lord Jesus, includes a prayer for the conversion of the lost in this sense. Christ will only return when the last of his elect has been brought to faith in Jesus. So we are actually praying for the conversion of the lost when we pray for Jesus to return. It was the promise of Christ's coming that gave to the church in the New Testament era her sense of urgency in living. And we need this sense today. We must be highly motivated by the truth that we find here. What is the Spirit of God saying to the church this morning through the preaching of His Word? He is saying, live life with this eschatological urgency, expectancy, and alertness. That's what He's saying. People of God, may you say from your very souls, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I conclude with the words of John the Apostle as found in 1 John 
chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.